We uh, come to uh, a time of preaching the word. Uh, I'm eagerly looking forward to all that is before us this morning, but I'm also at the same time uh, very much in awe of what the Lord has uh, placed upon my heart to share. And uh, my prayer is that it would be communicated effectively and that the Lord would use it greatly in the life of this church. Uh, for those who uh, are visiting with us, um, we, are, we have a theme verse behind us, but we also are really trying to come to understand what God's perspective on the church really is. Uh, not necessarily what uh, others would tell us, not what the world would tell us, not what uh, contemporary culture would tell us, but what the Word says. And so I'd have you, if you would, find your place in the Scriptures in that passage we read before, 1 Corinthians 12. We're going to get to this text in a little while, but it'd be handy if you're already there so that you're prepared for uh, all that is before us. Unusually, I'm not going to read the text yet this morning. I have a lengthy introduction, so I'm giving you the warning now. Lengthy introduction, short message. Okay, lengthy introduction, short message. But here are some thoughts for us to look at in just a moment. But let's pray again. Uh, Lord, I I recognize my utter need uh, of your strength and uh, ability to communicate uh, all that is before me. I thank you for the way in which uh, you have uh, led and directed my thinking to all that we are looking at today. I thank you for this local church. Thank you for uh, what you are doing uh, in us and through us and for us. Uh, Lord, we again recognize that we are dependent upon you to change us. Every one of us needs to be changed uh, to be more and more transformed to the image of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Help us in these few moments we have together in your word, uh, and we thank you for, uh, for meeting with us. In Jesus' name, amen. The church is at war. Since the beginning of the church in Acts chapter 2, the hordes of hell have encamped around her and relentlessly attacked. Many times she has been wounded, but her captain said, the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. And true to his word, they never have and they never will. There's been dark times in the history of church where we may have wondered Where is God in all of this? And I don't mean in the history necessarily of this church, but church in general. Although in the history of our own church, there have been dark times. And many of you have come through that. But in Ephesians 5, 26 to 27, again, just some references. You don't have to look them up right now. Paul tells us that the church is the bride of Christ. We're probably familiar with that term. And that bride is being sanctified or made holy and purified By the word. That's what the Bible says. That he would purify his church. She is to be holy. A virtuous bride without spot or blemish. And one day she will be given to the bridegroom who is Jesus Christ. In days to come. However, we are also told church this morning. That in the last days the love of many will grow cold. We're told that perilous times are here and it is critical. 
Yea, it is essential that we pay careful attention to the purpose of the church. That we come back to what is true about the church. In fact, the writer of Hebrews says this, And let us consider how we can stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some is, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day coming. And that day is the day of Jesus Christ. The point there that the writer of Hebrews is saying, these terrible times are coming and they are already here for us now. Perilous times are here. Uh, There is all sorts of things going on in the general church of Jesus Christ or the so-called church of Jesus Christ. And it is essential that the church build one another up, stir one another up, not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. But as the day approaches, even more so, there needs to be this matter of family and unity and functionality together. Since we live in perilous times, Paul tells us, and Christ's return is imminent, the church must be increasingly more concerned with preaching and teaching the scripture, stirring one another up in love and good works, meeting together, adorning the doctrines of God, and faithfully administering the gospel to a world that is in desperate dire need of the good news of Jesus Christ. But may I say this to us this morning, sadly the church, for the most part, has become distracted from its purpose. Much of this distraction, I believe, comes from a faulty understanding of what the church really is. See, there's a great deal of misconception associated with the very term church. And you've heard me say this many times, like a broken record. Some immediately think of an old edifice when I say the word church. On the crest of a hill with a large bell that can be heard for miles. Some of you associate the word church with that. Others of you may recall in your past years a dusty room with hard pews, stained glass windows and a ritualistic service where much of your childhood was spent. That might be your concept of church. Another alternative is the perception that church is a place where only the weak-minded and deluded find hope and something to believe in. Let me say this again for perhaps, I don't know, maybe the hundredth time since I've been pastor here. The church is not a place. It is a people. And some of you wonder why every time you say we're going to meet at the church, I always correct you. Because the church is not a building. It is a people. In fact, John MacArthur said this, The church is made up of people called by God to be his children through faith in Jesus Christ who are united to one another. That's what the church is. That's a great definition. And in uh, in commenting on the contemporary ideas of church, he continues and writes this, Today the church is a massive organisation with denominations, commissions, committees, councils, boards and programmes. It quite often functions like a business rather than a body, a factory rather than a family, and a corporation rather than a community. Churches, please note this, have become entertainment centers, giving mere performances to thousands of passive, unproductive churchgoers. Now, I recognize that there is 
the possibility that some of the things I say today may cause offence to some, and I would ask that if that occurs, you would come see me. I do not want to be offensive in anything I communicate today, but I do want to be biblically sound, and I can't apologise for that. We do not want to engage in popular cultural concepts of church. We do not want to take our cues from the society. We want to take them from the scriptures. Okay, We're not concerned. I'm not concerned. I hope you're not concerned about how relevant our church is. How many instruments are on the platform. How many people are in attendance. How much money is in the bank. You see, the world... And the church have quickly gone to a success model where the blessings, so to speak, determine that everything is going right. Because there's lots of money in the bank, because there's lots of people sitting in the pews, it must all be going well. That is faulty. Our success is based upon one thing, and that is obedience to the word of God and conformity to Christ through it. That is the definition of success in a church. That we would grow up to maturity. That we would look like the Lord Jesus Christ. Not that we would have a plethora of instruments on the platform. And please don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that's wrong in and of itself. But many are looking for that as the means of success. Many are looking for short little sermonettes from people who don't really want to teach the scriptures. They want to give you a few illustrations and a few graphic ideas that, you know, that don't really change lives. For the majority of what is called church today, we have moved from the sufficiency and power of the scriptures to little sermonettes, to little talks, to little motivational speeches that don't change anybody's life. And may I say this to you this morning, wherever there has been a deviation from God's word in the church, great and grave error has crept in and brought destruction. I think last week when we uh, looked at some of those interviews I did with some people, some of you may have been struck by the fact that there are some in this building today who've been saved Christians for more than 70 years. And I was thinking about that. Um, as a 31-year-old who's not even half the age of uh, some of the folks around here, I was thinking about all that has occurred in your lifetime as a Christian. Over the last 70 years, not just in the church, but in the world, in technology, so much has occurred. Um, I would love to sit down sometime and maybe do another interview with Pearl and and find out for the last 90-some years what has happened in your life, how life has changed, and I'm sure she'd have some incredible stories. But you know what has happened? The world has changed. We know that. But so has the church. It's moved. It's deviated from truth. Again, uh, without wanting to be offensive, I want to ask some questions of us for consideration. How did we get to a place where we could legitimize the sin of abortion, of homosexuality, of unscriptural divorce, of many other things that are culturally now acceptable. How did we get to that? Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not pulling those out because they're major issues in the sense for me personally. All sin is sin before the Lord. But how did we get to that place where even in the church of Jesus Christ, we have legitimized what is clear sin in the scriptures? How did we get there? I'll tell you how we got there. 
We adapted our position on truth based upon the cultural compass and not the word of God. That's how we got there. That's how we got to a place where suddenly anything goes. Everything's okay. There's no call to holiness anymore. There's no call to sanctification, to be like Jesus Christ, to uphold his word because we love him supremely. What happened? We followed the culture. And the church has always been just one or two steps behind the culture. You say, where are you going this morning? Boy, this is, this is full on. What is the point? Well, before I get to our text this morning and by way of an introduction to this whole new series that we're going to be looking at, I want to give you a historical survey of 10 major false ideologies that have pervaded the culture and by extension the church. Now, I'm warning you now, you need to, uh, to strap in to get comfortable for a minute. But you also need to, in the words of the old King James Bible, gird up the loins of your mind. What that simply means is get your concentration caps on because I'm going to give you a whole lot of isms and schisms, words like that for a few moments. And I'm going to explain them and I hope that will help set the introduction to what we're going to look at. Ten thoughts, ten ideologies that are pervasive in the culture. One thing before I begin that you must know. It is important that you understand that these ideologies did not simply exist for a time and then disappear. They came and they stayed and they compounded to where we are today. People say, how did we get to where we are? Well, there's a series of ideologies that have occurred, but they didn't just come and go. They came and they stayed and they became ever more pervasive in the culture and the church so that now we have all ten of these ideologies plus all kinds of other ones in our current culture and church. I hope you understand what I'm saying. They've merged these subsequent thoughts and have permeated every corner of church and culture. So number one, here we go. Gnosticism. Gnosticism. Now, some of these words may be completely unfamiliar to you, and if you would like a copy of the message notes, you're welcome to them. Gnosticism. This is an ideology that was present in the New Testament. This is something that was going on when John was writing, when Paul was writing, and it came from the philosophers, from the Socrates and the people like that from centuries before. The Gnostics, Gnosticism, comes from the word gnosis in the Greek, which is knowledge. These individuals believed in acquiring a special mystical knowledge as the means of salvation. In fact, Gnosticism declared that man is essentially good. He's a good soul trapped in a material sinful body. So by very nature, man is okay. It's just this body suit that I'm wearing, this external aspect of my life that has sinful flaws. Now, we know from the scriptures that that is completely wrong. At the very core of who we are, we are depraved in every sense. The Gnostic thinking claims that deeper truth can be found outside of God. You say, where's Gnosticism today? You're saying Gnosticism came and it's still here? Absolutely it is in areas like philosophy. In areas like higher thinking, in Buddhist thinking, in even yoga, moralistic atheism, and much more. All of those things stem from this Gnosticism that the Apostle John, Paul, and Peter were fighting in their day. May I say to us, we're still fighting it today. 
in various forms. Gnosticism, first one. I'm very aware that with 10 of these, this could be all day, so I better get a move on. Number two, sacramentalism. Now, I will already, I will tell you as well, some of these words are coined phrases. You look them up in the dictionary, they don't exist, some of them. Okay, they're to help us understand. Sacramentalism. This is an incredibly dangerous one that became very, very real during the reign of Constantine in the 4th century. He made Christianity the religion of the Roman Empire. If you do any historic studies, you'll find he, some believe, was a true Christian. I have no full understanding of that. I read his writings. There's good things he writes. There's some bad things he writes. I don't have a judgment on that, nor should I. But I will say this. He made the constitutional church. What I mean by the constitutional church is that he replaced the personal decision of trusting Jesus Christ as Saviour to a corporate, constitutional, sacramental concept. In other words, external ritualism, ceremonies and rites. In fact, by the end of his reign, salvation became something you could be physically born into and maintained by baptism and the Eucharist. Is this starting to sound like something that is very apparent in our day? In fact, this is really the summary of what sacramentalism is. It is that an individual needs to connect to the church and not to Christ. The church is the means of getting to Christ. That is heresy. That is abomination that anybody would think by joining a church, by being a part of a church in any sense, that you are somehow involved with God. It is a personal decision at which point you become a member of the church, not the other way around. Uh, Folks, you know, I have no doubt that this is what brought into being the Roman Catholic Church with all of its traditions and its sacraments. Again, I want to pause in case anybody thinks I'm being unduly harsh. I love Catholics. I love talking to them. I love sharing the gospel with them. Don't for a moment think that this is a bag-out session. It's not. But I do want to provide overriding truth about how this all happened. Sacramentalism. Number three. Another dangerous ideology called rationalism. Rationalism. So most of you know that the Catholic Church... Uh, was the, uh, the church that was in charge for many, many centuries there. And then in the 15, 1600s, we have the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, where Martin Luther nails 95 theses to the door of the church and everything changes. And uh, we have other men that come through. And you remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about those, those five solas, Sola Scriptura down the bottom, which is Scripture alone. Sola Fide, that is grace alone. A Sola Gratia, that is by grace alone. And then Sola Christos, in Christ alone. And then we have that top part, you remember that image, which was Sola Deo Gloria, all glory to God. The Reformation brought us back to biblical truth. And that was a wonderful time in history, a very painful bloodshed time in history. But it did that, but it also gave birth to something else, a powerful new ideology named rationalism. A book by a man called Thomas Paine in history. He wrote a book called The Age of Reason. Some of you may have seen that or heard of it. Very famous book published in 1794. This three-part book advocated reason 
instead of God's revelation. Reason instead of God's revelation. It led to a rejection of the miracles in the Bible because they couldn't be worked out reasonably. It rejected the scriptures and said they're an ordinary piece of literature and not divinely inspired. This book, along with other noted works, taught that truth is determined by reason, by what I can work out. You know what happened then in the church? Because this age of reason, this rationale came in, suddenly people started saying things like this. Well, I can't work out how the Trinity works, therefore it can't be true. Let me say this to you. I can't work out how the Trinity works and I've been studying theology for more than 15 years. I can't work out how all that operates. I can't work out the hypostatic union. What I mean by that is that God incarnate in the form of Jesus Christ, fully human, fully God. I can't work that out. And because I am unable to reason it, these people would say it cannot be true because only what is reasonable is true. If that is correct, then we are God's ourselves because if a god up there says i created this and he's higher than me i can't reason that fully ever but if i can reason that i am my own god in essence this gave birth to this idea of rationalism and you know what it's interesting from this idea of rationalism evolution popped up that's where evolution came from did you know that the nazi movement was based upon rationalism Did you know that Adolf Hitler was actually not interested in getting rid of the church? He was involved in a German church at the time. And what he did, he did in the name of religion. You may not have read that, but it's in his book. And what he did is he redefined church. He got rid of the Jews out of the Old Testament and then picked pieces of scripture out to help his own agenda. That's how the Nazi movement came into being. Rationalism. Furthermore, psychology And all forms of self-help came ultimately from rationalism. Number four, orthodoxism. Took me a few times to spell that right, so don't be concerned if you get it wrong the first time. Orthodoxism. Now we move forward to the 19th century. In the 19th century, you find something very interesting happens in history. Mass printing becomes a reality. Now, the printing press had already been invented some time ago, but mass printing becomes a great technological advancement in that century. Bibles and religious materials are getting published left, right and centre. They're all over the place because the publishers are mostly from Christian background. And so the word of God is readily available. Now, you might immediately think, oh, Wonderful. Everybody's got the Bible in their hands and, and things, are, things are happening. They can read uh, great preaching and they can read the Wesleys and the Whitfields and it's all being delivered in incredible mass. And that is true. But quite the opposite occurred to what we'd want. A cold, dead orthodoxy emerged where most espoused the truths and creeds of Christianity, but they were having no impact on the life. They knew the scriptures, but they were not changed by the scriptures. What a sad reality. And folks, are there orthodox churches today? And I don't mean Greek orthodox. I mean, do we have orthodoxy in the church where we have the scriptures, we even have good Bible preaching and materials available, yet it's not transforming the heart because the people are hardened. This 
was the time in history that gave birth to real orthodoxism. Number five, now we really we get into the last century in the 1950s, something called ecumenism. Ecumenism. It's a new brand of idealism that surfaced, which sought the unification of previously incompatible religions or spiritual movements. Denominations began to merge as they sought unity without doctrine. Okay, for those who may not be familiar, doctrine is the teaching of God's word. They sought unity without bringing doctrine to the forefront or even at all. In fact, a tolerance of error for the sake of cohesion began. You know what? We're going to let that one go. That's not that big a deal. That aspect, your position on that, that's not so big a deal. We just want to come back together here. We want to, we want to have a unity. And shortly later, cooperative campaigns followed and truth was no longer a distinction worth fighting for. The popular principle that I'm certain almost every one of you will have heard, this is where it came from. Doctrine divides, but love unites. It was fashioned in the fires of ecumenism. That's where that came from. It came from the fact that, you know what, we should just we should get rid of doctrine altogether, all of our teaching, all of that. Let's lose that in order that we would just come together in a form of love. One great problem with ecumenical movements in that, and I'm for Christians getting together, please don't misunderstand. One great problem there is that love does not exist without truth. In fact, 1 Corinthians 13 tells us that love rejoices in the truth. It looks for the truth. It wants the truth. It does not say, I don't need truth. Let's just all get together. Ecumenism, number five. Number six. Humanism. Humanism. In the 60s, this really began to exist. It was already there, but this is when it really had a a major accomplishment in the world and then subsequently in the church. Humanism or subjectivism is the self-esteem culture. It primarily focuses on the importance, the achievements, the authority and potential of mankind. Um, There are a whole lot of books and resources I could refer to, but for the sake of time I won't. One commentator, and I appreciate this, one commentator calls this line of thinking, this particular period of time, narcissistic navel watching. That's what he calls it, narcissistic navel watching. And I think that's a pretty good summary of all that is contained in this matter of humanism. This concept is steeped in pride. You know why? Because it's all about me. It's all about my felt needs. It's all about what I can do. And if you will just believe in yourself, it will come true. This is honestly Disney theology. Disney theology says whatever, whatever you're able to conceive, you can achieve if you will just believe. That's Disney theology for you. Whatever you can conceive, you can achieve if you will just believe in yourself. That's humanism. This wave of thought gave birth to the feminist movement. Abortive procedures, atheism, agnosticism, psychotherapy, self-help techniques, and is essentially mankind's attempt to get by without God. 
Now, uh, again, I just want to pause and say, uh, for those who don't know me well enough, I think most of you do, uh, I don't have any problem with females. So when I say the feminist movement, I'm not saying that uh, I don't like women. What I'm saying is that there was a shift. There was a great shift that occurred whereby what happened is a shift in, in total discord to the word of God. It changed from what God says is supposed to be the right uh, the, the, the right duties and functions of husbands and wives, mothers and fathers. Number seven, experientialism. Experientialism. In the 1970s, the charismatic and Pentecostal movements took off. This movement largely, and again, I uh, don't want to generalize too much, but largely replaced the truth of God's revealed word in the scriptures with feelings, external revelations, visions, prophecies, and internal intuition. Everybody had a word from the Lord. And yet, in many cases, they were contradictory with the pages of scripture. The exper- experientialism reached its height on January the 20th, 1994, when the congregation at Toronto Airport Christian Fellowship Church erupted in a spiritual chaos which took the form of uncontrollable laughter, roaring like a lion, dancing, involuntary shaking, barking like dogs and temporary paralysis, which the English newspapers called the Toronto Blessing. It was attested that this was the Holy Spirit's outpouring. May I say this to us, and it's very, very important we understand this, experience must never determine or replace God's truth in the word. So here's what happens very, very often to those who are experientialists. Well, I had a vision, I had a word from the Lord, and he told me to do this. When I challenge that individual on the scriptural truth found within what they have said, it does not line up with scripture Now, I believe that this is the final, sufficient, absolute authority for our life and practice. If what you say does not line up with the scriptures, I'm sorry, I'm not on your side. I'm always on God's side. Because God's side is his word, his final word. This is the more sure word. And we'll have more discussion on experientialism in days to come. Number eight. I did tell you the message is going to be short, right? You know that, yeah? The actual message is going to be short. For those who are going far out, I've got a chicken cooking at home. It's going to be burnt by the time I get back. Number eight, pragmatism. This might be a word you're not all that familiar with. You hear the word pragmatic? This is the pattern of thinking that suggests that value and worth is determined by outcome. Let me say that a different way. If a technique proves successful, it must be good and right. So, for example, in the modern church today, if a ministry of ours is gaining lots of people from the community, we must be doing everything right. There's a real problem with that. There's a real problem with that. Pragmatism denies the notion of right and wrong and ultimately defines truth by what works. That worked. It must be truth. That's pragmatism. Pragmatism is seen in the church at every turn. People say things like this. Wow, look at how many people are in that church. Whatever they're doing must be right. I don't know if you've heard that before. I certainly have. Wow, there's thousands of people in that mega church over there. 
They must be doing something right. Well, no, not necessarily. Not necessarily at all. The question is, are they biblical? Not, have they got a lot of people? Pragmatism leads to what is called the seeker-sensitive movement, which simply makes church people uh, which simply makes church what the people want it to be. I'll never forget an article I read some years ago of a mega church in America where they were giving ponies away to those people who would become members because they were living in such a situation that most people, when they took a survey, wanted a pony. That's it. There's an article on it. I have it. I'll give you a copy if you would so like. Giving away things in order that you would come. Pragmatic approaches to life are not biblical approaches to life. We don't do that. We wait for the Spirit of God to do a work in your heart as to where you need to be when it comes to church. Pragmatism, number nine. We've only got one more after this. Syncretism. Syncretism. Now, some of you looked at me like, what in the world is that just then? This ideology became popular in the 90s. Now we're getting a bit closer to home, folks, in the 90s. Pragmatism, by the way, is also 80s and 90s. Syncretism. It is the belief that we all... Worship the same God. All of us, whether you're a Hindu or a Mormon, Jihad or Jew. We all just need to get along and realize that at the core of our belief is a God who takes many forms, is what syncretism says. A good example of syncretism, and again, I use this person's name not to, uh, not to cause them grief, but to point out the truth of what the scripture says. There is a new Chrislam movement. Some of you know that from our Bible study. I've shared that with you already. Chrislam. That is bringing together Christianity and Islam into a functional, workable religious concept. Famous author and emerging church leader Rick Warren is the leader of this. Now, many of you have read Purpose Driven Church, Purpose Driven Life. And apart from the fact that I think it is wildly outside of the scriptural parameters, this is the man who is leading this. He is leading Chrislam and he has met and partnered with the Islamic Society of America to eradicate the differences between Christianity and Islam and help people understand that our God is the same God as Allah. How did we get there? I'll tell you how we got there. We got there because we followed rationalism. We got there because we followed uh, ecumenism. We got there because we denied truth and we said we don't necessarily want to follow the scriptures. We want to bring everything together here. That's when Jesus said in John chapter 17 that they all may be as one. His goal in there was not that all religions would be one. His goal there was that the true Christians, those who love God and love his truth, would come together as one. That was Jesus' prayer. That's syncretism, the last one. And the most prevalent one in our culture right now, relativism. This is the doctrine of today. All the others are still around, but this is the one. This is the notion that truth is relative. Folks, you have your truth and I have mine. Your your truth is not to encroach upon my truth, just like my truth isn't to encroach on you. And we can all get along if you'll keep your truth and I'll keep my truth. Simply put, there's no absolutes, there's no objective truth. Whatever you think, your upbringing, your background, your worldview, it's all taken into consideration. Your background, that's all fine. That is what we call relativism. Everybody's view is valid and should not be disputed. Now, I'm all for religious freedom in this country. Please don't misunderstand but I'm all for objective truth found in the scriptures. You know, relativism is why religious education has been removed from the schools. 
Some of you used to be RE teachers. Okay, you're not going to be RE teachers for long if you still are. It's going. That's why it's been removed. That's why it will very soon be a criminal offence to call homosexuality a sin. It's going to be. I guarantee shortly we will get locked up for saying what I'm saying. This recording goes out and one day someone may well come in here and arrest me for saying that the scripture says, according to Romans chapter 1, homosexuality is a sin. That's the reality of our culture. Relativism has done a great deal of damage. In fact, this is why the moral fabric of our society is unravelling at a rapid rate. When the schools, universities, motels, hotels, marriage celebrants and even churches threw the Bible out, they removed God's moral compass, resulting in greater depths of decay and depravity as attested to by Romans chapter 1. For your own homework, do this sometime. Read Romans 1 and follow the pattern through. It is a downward spiral going from one stage to another and you can almost pinpoint all of the different ideologies that I have suggested this morning in Romans chapter 1. And you get down to the very bottom and the summary of it all is they were interested in the creation and not the creator. And God gave them up to their own vile affections. Why are we where we are? Because God has said, do what you want to do. Do what you want to do. I will withdraw my restraining hand that has been there and in the last days perilous times will come sin in all of its colours and its depravity so much so that this very weak yet another group has tried to come together and protest the fact that it is okay for pedophiles to do what they do. You know why? Because it's just the way they were born. It's a genetic problem. It's not a genetic problem. It's sin and sin in depravity. And God has said, do what you want to do. It's going to get worse, folks. This is just really the beginning. It's getting worse and worse. Every single day in my email and news feed, there are hundreds of articles on this sort of thing. How do we get here? All of these schisms and isms have one thing in common. A departure from the truth of God's revealed Word. You know what else we departed from? We departed from an understanding of what church really is. The church is not what it ought to be. No wonder the culture is not reflecting the glory of God to some degree. All of these falsehoods, all of these ten ideologies and many more, let me say this to us, they mount up against us and they wage war against every believer in this place. You don't even realise, nor do I, as you think through your own heart and mind, how much these have actually affected you. How much these ideologies. I start my university course on Monday. I've had a little bit of a look at some of the things that I'm going to be doing in those two units. And let me tell you, it is filled with humanism. And people sometimes ask me, what's your position on homeschooling and secular education and Christian school education? My question for those parents is this. How much have you been affected by the ideologies of the world? And can you counteract them with your children if you send them out there? I don't make comment about whether you should or you shouldn't, except to say, parents, those children are being taught right now all kinds of issues and gender problems in the, in the schools and education system, and it's all part and parcel of this. If you as parents, if you as leaders in a church, if you as Christians have got these ideologies in your own minds, you will never be able to stand against the attack of the devil. You know where he attacks us? The mind. It's the mind. The wiles of the devil and if we don't have the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit and the belt of truth that's good about us, we haven't got a hope. We have not got a hope in this culture of staying true to the word. 
If we are not actively renewing our minds in the word of God and more so as the day approaches, we will fall prey to every one of these ideologies. And some of us may already be there. Now I think I made a new record for the longest introduction in the history of this church. That's the scene. That's the backdrop. You say, man, you painted that bleak. That's intentional. Because until we see the bleakness, we cannot see the glory and the good in the scripture that we have. And so the call this morning for just a couple of minutes before I finish is simply this. Come back to church. Not to the building. Come back to New Testament church. Remember last year our theme verse was they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayers. That was the theme of the New Testament church. We must come back to New Testament church. And the message, if you want a message title, part one this morning is the body concept. That's what we're going to look at for just five or so minutes before we finish here. The body concept. You're in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, probably wondering if we're ever going to get to it, but we're here. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I just want to read you one verse. And that is verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. Christ's body, the local church. We, again, don't have time to turn there, but let me just tell you that this concept of the body is unique to the Apostle Paul. He uses it in Romans, in Ephesians, in Colossians, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 here. Numerous verses, if uh, I can give you those later. But this is his concept. The Lord, by revelation, has told him as an apostle that the church is like a body. And so that's what we're told here. Interestingly enough, the Apostle Paul knew a thing or two about his body. He'd suffered physically a great deal, hadn't he? The Apostle Paul, stoned, beaten, shipwrecked, all kinds of things that happened to him. And you know what? Sometimes we forget Luke, the physician, was Paul's personal physician in his journeys. And so he was constantly with a doctor. And I'm certain that he knew something about the human body. Now, I have very little knowledge about anatomy. I'm the first to admit that. I was never good in the sciences. English was always a science. So here's some information for you. The human body has 206 bones. It has one brain. Some of you might be surprised to hear that. One brain... It has one nose, it has one mouth, two eyes, two auditory apparatuses, ears. I don't know why it has to be so big, just ears would be fine. Four limbs, 600 plus muscles, enough blood cells to circle the earth twice, 40,000 plus chemical enzymes, millions of neurons, and the most recent calculation, which I think is hilarious, of 37.2 trillion cells. I can just see that scientist going one Two, three. So the, the most recent summary is 37.2 trillion cells. Interestingly enough, when I thought, I wonder how many parts there are to the body, because Paul's using this as an example, right? So I looked it up. The American Association of Anatomy has identified 7,500 individual parts or members of the human body. However, they quickly say, scientists cannot tell us how many parts remain undiscovered or currently unidentified. I think it's hilarious in some senses that, you know, these scientists who look up and say there is no God can't even count how many parts we have. 
How many hairs are upon our head? And yet our God says, I know every one of the numbers of the hairs on your head. Now, some of you say, well, I haven't got many. That's not hard for God. But the rest of us say, we've got plenty. And uh, we don't know how many there are. I think it's hilarious. Despite the mystery of the human body, it operates in unity and cohesion. Now, some of us know today we have, uh, we've walked in, we've been hobbling, maybe we've, we're in a wheelchair, whatever else. We know that there are disabilities, but our body works in unity, cohesion, and we don't even know all the parts of it. The same is to be a reality in the church of Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us that before Christ came, the concept of the church was a mystery. Here's the overriding truth for us to understand. The local church is the body of Christ. This right here is a body amongst many bodies in the world. We understand. But this is the body of Christ right here. And it's made up of many members which, have all, have, which all have specific functions designed by God. You know what that means? You are here by divine appointment, church. You are here as a divine, sovereign work of God. We exist here for the last 17 years because God ordained it. Not because we want it, but because he has designed it. There's different roles, responsibilities, gifts and functions. And we're going to look at all of that in the days to come. But there is to be unity in Christ. And just a couple of comments before we finish here. Just like a human body... The church can be disabled. The church can be handicapped and it can be dysfunctional. I looked up, uh, and most of you know I have an intellectually disabled sister and have had a great deal to do with the, uh, uh, the, the realm of disabilities and uh, those who are handicapped. And I looked up the Disability Dis- Discrimination Act of 1992 to get a definition. This is what it defined a disability as. Total or partial loss of a person's bodily or mental functions. Total or partial loss of a part of the body. The presence in the body of organisms causing disease or illness. The malfunction, malformation or disfigurement of any part of a person's body. Or lastly, a disorder, illness or disease that affects a person's thought processes, perception of reality, emotions of judgment or that results in disturbed behaviour. Lots in there that in the realm of physical or mental disability. Please, as we close, hear this. A church that fails to operate as God intended is disabled. The thinking is wrong, just like the physically disabled. The spiritual mobility and growth is impaired. Members of a body that distance themselves from a local church or are are unscripturally severed from an assembly... Form a dysfunctional church. Likewise, the diseases of gossip, slander, unforgiveness, a critical spirit, hypocrisy, pride, selfish ambition are all life-threatening maladies which enter the bloodstream of a church and destroy the body. Just like the definition of human disability Same is true of the church. These diseases, when they get into a church, will destroy it if left unchecked. When some parts of the body, here's another thought for us, when some parts of the body are receiving nourishment and others are not, the body becomes disfigured and cannot function like it should. Paul tells us that only when every part is working properly together will it build itself up together in love. 
So you probably know where we're going here in the overall spectrum, uh, spectrum of this come back to church. It's that every single person within this Mount Cathedral Community Baptist Church family needs to function as God wants you to function. Because if this side over here is growing and receiving the word and it's, it's finding lodging and root in their heart and they're changing and transforming, and yet this side over here isn't, we have a, a malnourished and a disfigured church. And that's not how God wanted it to be. In fact, we find, as the uh, Disability Discrimination Act said, disturbed behaviour is the result of many forms of disability. This is also true of the church. Poor judgment, faulty thinking, a misunderstanding of spiritual realities is a very good summary of what we see in contemporary church today. As one local body of believers and as your pastor... It is my heart's desire that we come to terms with the fact that we are Christ's body. This is not just a gathering. This is not a community meeting. This is not just something that we do. I am not content to let you come here on a Sunday, sit down, listen to my preaching, get back into your cars and go about your normal lives and not once more think of Christ and your involvement in a local Assembly, you, we are blood-bought brothers and sisters in Christ that are supposed to work and function cohesively. We're a body that's been sovereignly appointed by God and we have a responsibility to one another, which we'll get to in 1 Corinthians 12 at a later time. Please understand that what I'm teaching is not seeker-sensitive. This is not stuff that the world would say, oh yeah, go Pastor Daniel, doing a great job there. This is totally opposed to the ideologies of the world and the ideologies of most contemporary churches. We want to get back to this. We don't want to stray from it. We want to safeguard ourselves that this would be what we take in and live by. One final thought as we close. If you're thinking, church, this morning is patterned after the world's thinking, you will probably get offended at the truths that I have shared this morning. Because the reality of it is, it is the antithesis of all that is promoted outside. What I'm saying today is revolutionary to some of you, perhaps. And here is what I would ask you to do. Pray that God would reveal his truth to you in these teaching times. And remove the false ideologies that have crept into your mind. That we would do, as Paul said, bring into captivity every thought into Christ. Every single thought would go through the filter system of the Word of God, the Spirit of God, and would then change us. I pray that that would be a reality. We want to come back to church. We want to come back to church.